Lo-Fi Pilots Eye coming at you, Michael Pickering here talking about not our normal famous question, no, 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 but rather a future famous person, perhaps, yes, indeed, joining us for the show today, making her return after a year and a half, the amazing Shay Meredith, a 3L JD candidate from the University of Illinois College of Law, who is planning to work as a public defender in the Chicago area after she passes the bar this coming year, and one of the best students I've ever had. Welcome back to the show, Shay. How are we doing? <laughs> well, thank you so much. Um, I, I'm doing really well. I'm happy to be back. How about you? Oh, I'm I'm doing fantastic. It's lovely. The weather, it's actually starting to feel like fall or winter, depending on your take on how cold is cold, but it is beautiful outside in New Orleans. How's, uh, how's the weather up there out in Chicago area? You know, it's starting to get pretty cold. It's been getting cold for the last couple of weeks, um, making me really miss the New Orleans weather. Um, but, you know, it's a nice change and it's nice to have like an actual full fall season. So. There you go. Now you know you officially have turned old, Shay, since you're talking about the weather with me. That's right. <laughs> no, but how's law school going? You're finally, you're a 3L. For those of you, people out there who don't know, law school, it's its in three different year categories. It's 1L, it's first year, 2L, second year, 3L is your third year. And the last time I talked to you, Shay, um, you were actually the first person to ever come on the show. And you were the first guest and you were in your second semester of 1L. And now, yes. now you're, you're in your first semester of 3L, your final year. How has this been like? Uh, it's been a really wild ride. Um, yeah, last time I was on, um, so in, in 1L, you don't get to take your classes. You kind of just have to take all of the basic law courses, which, to be honest, I found incredibly boring. Um, and so I, you know, after that first year, I was kind of like, mm, I guess I'm going to stick it out, go into my second year. Um, and it was much better when I got to pick classes that I really enjoyed. Um, and then, you know, this year they actually call 3L, um, 3LOL, because it's most of the time people don't really do a whole lot. And I am definitely falling into that category. I'm only taking 12 credit hours, um, just taking lots of classes that I really enjoy. And, you know, it's, it's, it's been a lot, it's steadily getting better and, but I'm also ready to be done. So. <laughs> Three LOL. That's that's funny. That's funny. Is that a is that a College of Law, University of Illinois kind of thing, or is that like widespread nationwide? I don't know a whole lot about law school trends. You know, I think it is a law school wide thing. Um, to be honest, I um, don't really know much about other law schools. Um, didn't really know any lawyers or, or people in law school before I went. So. Um, I, I do feel a little insulated with my experience, but I do think it's a pretty, a pretty common trend. That's interesting. Normally, whenever I talk to people, um, like former students uh, or, or students that are thinking about going to law school, a lot of them, they very much either like have lawyers in their family or they know lawyers or like they kind of already have like a leg into it. It's very rare to meet someone of my students who are like, yeah, I want to be a lawyer. And it's like, why? And they're like, oh, I don't know. It's just kind of what I want to do. It's like, really, you want to go to law school, but just on a whim. Uh, interesting, interesting. Would you say law school is easy, medium, hard, what you expected? Like, what is it now that you're almost done with it? Like, how do you think about it compared to before you started? 
Oh, that's, it, you know, it, <laughs> this is such a common refrain in the legal field too. And it's, anytime I talk about being a law student or going into the legal field, you know, it depends is like the phrase everyone uses. Um, but it, it definitely, you know, when I thought about law school before, it was sort of this really nebulous concept. I didn't really know what I was getting into. And I kind of went into the whole situation thinking I'm going to struggle a lot. And I did my first year kind of getting my bearings, but um, you know, it, it, I definitely found my footing. And I think a lot of people, once they sort of figure out what they want to do in the law, they, you know, by their 2L year, they feel a little bit more comfortable with everything. Um, and as far as like comparative difficulty, uh, my brother is a physics PhD student. And man, there is no comparison. I have to say like law school, is definitely easier than what he's doing. Um, and I imagine easier than most PhD programs, pretty much anyone who's in law school would, would agree with me. You know, we, anyone who comes out of law school and calls themselves a doctor is um, pretty much asking for a punch in the face. Uh, really? You know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, I could see with the whole physics PhD thing, but something I have come to learn is that not all PhD programs are as difficult as you might think, and it's not even necessarily by field, um, because even in the same field, like I know other people who did PhDs and other universities, and I'm not going to name drop, uh, but like there's some universities that you would think it is extremely difficult to get a PhD in, and then you you talk to them about like in political science in general, and you talk to them about what their PhD comprehensive exams were like. So, I mean, you have, you have to take the bar before you become a lawyer, right? right. So like in the, in the PhD process, you have to take PhD comprehensive exams, and then you also have to write a dissertation and defend it. But like the PhD comps, that's the exams. It's basically like you get asked a few questions about your field um, and you have like either one day or two day, but you have several hours of testing where you just, you write, you write, you write. And it's an assessment of how much you've absorbed about the literature. And we, for our PhD comps, we have to go off of memory. And so like, we have to remember authors. We have to remember the years that they published. We have to remember the theories, like everything has to be off of memory. And so basically you're writing like literature reviews and analytical um, essays that are up to 20 pages just completely off of memory and it's for hours and hours and hours and i talked to some other people and they're like oh no we got to bring like cheat sheets and you know we got to bring list of authors and all their theories and i was like you mean to tell me your phd comprehensive exams were open fucking book i was like get the fuck out of here i was like or some people's PhD comprehensive exams aren't even exams. They just write papers, which is also like, it's also like a take-home exam. I was like, my goodness, I wish, I wish. Um, so your brother's being in physics, I could see like high-level physics being difficult, but not all PhDs are, are necessarily as difficult to get, at least at the very end of it. But like, how difficult is the bar going to be? Um, I hear different things about that. What do you, what's your tell? Man, we'll just... I <laughs> I, you know, we don't have our cameras on, but my eyes, when you said that you had to write like 20 pages with no outlines or no notes or anything, that's, you know, in, in law, that is unthinkable, to be honest with you. Like, <laughs> that level of difficulty is not 
present in our exams. I mean, you know, sometimes we'll have closed book exams, but the professors sort of tailor the exams to, you know, usually you won't have to cite specific laws or statutes if they're totally closed book. Um, so it's definitely comparatively easier, I would say. Um, but as far as the bar goes, uh, the bar is difficult in the sense that it's so like broad based. And in the state of Illinois, uh, we take the uniform bar exam. So that's a bar exam that uh, the results are applicable. The test is, is the same across a bunch of states who have adopted the uniform bar exam as their like, testing measure. And basically, based on the score that you get on that, you can practice in an increasing number of jurisdictions that have adopted the uniform bar exam. So I think Illinois, I'm pretty sure is like middle of the pack as far as what score you have to get. Um, but like, for example, I think um, New York has one of the highest score requirements. Um, so a lot of the time when people end up passing the bar, they'll post on LinkedIn or, or tell their employer, I'm now licensed to practice in all uniform bar exam jurisdictions. Um, so, you know, my hope <laughs> is that when I take it, uh, I'll be able to get high enough scores so that, you know, if I want to move out of Illinois, I can go and practice in other places. Um, but the bar exam is, the difficult part about it, in my opinion, is it's so broad-based and you have to know everything about everything, um, like trust and estates, which is something I personally know nothing about. Um, you have to know things about criminal procedure, which is, you know, kind of in my wheelhouse, so I feel okay about that. Um, and you have to know things about like business associations and taxation. Um, you know, obviously it's, it's usually pretty basic things about that, but it's just so many different fields. And <laughs> for me, um, anything to do with like money management or like the business side of law is just, I immediately kind of fall asleep. So that's <laughs> could be a difficult one, but you know, we, we take, um, a lot of law students will take like eight week prep courses and you know usually those those set you up pretty well so i've i'm hoping for the best <laughs> but i i have like nine months to prep now so i'm, I'm just waiting waiting out the inevitable um shit show that that's going to be next summer is it open book or is it on a computer is it on paper like what's the format it is totally closed book. So that part is definitely a little bit reminiscent of what you were talking about with, um, with your comprehensive exams. Um, it is totally closed book, but um, it's all, you know, on, on the computer. I think they have some sort of like, you know, secure program that they allow people to take the exam. Uh, and I think it's split into two days, at least it was this past year uh, for my friends who graduated last year and just took it this last summer. And from what I heard, the first day is all multiple choice and then the second day is all like essays. So you get, you get all of it. <laughs> interesting, interesting. Yeah, I've known, so people I went to college with, uh, I know a couple people and, and one of my former roommates who took the bar and passed. And I think one of them, again, I'm not going to drop any names, not that they listen to this, but um, it, it, it took them, I think, twice to pass it. And it's, it's so funny because um, it, one of their favorite movies in undergrad was uh, My Cousin Vinny. 
and and yes. Joe Pesci like took him six times to pass the bar exam in the movie and it kind of made me chuckle when my friend told me it took him twice I was like uh, go you trying to be all my cousin Vinny in it um but yeah that's interesting like I had known that you know Louisiana has the the different system but I wasn't sure how it worked out as far as a uniform bar exam for the rest of the country and if you could just openly practice in all 49 states or like you said now there are requirements you have to make a certain score on a bar in order to practice in different states if you score high enough you can practice in all of them but if you don't you can only practice in some of them i did not know that that's interesting yeah and i mean that with louisiana so louisiana has um civil law and the rest of the country uses common law uh, common law, it's all kind of based on like court decisions and, you know, stare decisis. So whatever a court decides, the courts below it kind of have to follow that. And it's just like a lot of precedent sort of um, setting and building upon each other over the last, I guess, 250 years that this country has been in existence. Um, but in Louisiana, um, it, it's all about like codes from what I gather. I actually I don't know too much about Louisiana's legal system. I've tried to look into it just in case, you know, I want no, to- No, you're that. right. It's it's all civil, well, portions of it are all civil and code law. Um, it started to change and, and precedent does matter now as well. Um, but a good portion, especially in family law, it has to do with, it's based on like the Napoleonic code and code law in that instance, but it's not in all aspects of Louisiana law, but because it is a mixture, um, yeah, it is quite different. That's why we have yeah. to do the different the different bar, um, or not we. I don't have to take that. Goodness, no. <laughs> I did, it never crossed my mind to become a lawyer. I was like, uh, uh, I think not. So interesting because I I definitely have encountered so many people in law school who, and I, I mean I was in the same boat where I was sort of between thinking about a poli sci PhD or a history PhD and going to law school. Um, you know, there's a lot of overlap. A lot of people do poli sci in undergrad to sort of shift gears into law school eventually. So I'm, I'm surprised. I think you would, I think you make a great lawyer personally. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I do know quite a few people um, who are in my classes. Um, and even when I was an undergrad who do poli sci as kind of, kind of their own pre-law program, because not all undergraduate universities have pre-law programs and so they just do poli-sci um, but I mean the truth about it is poli-sci is going to help you in a law degree depending on what type of law you go into right like you know I have uh, another friend of mine who is a lawyer he got his undergraduate degree in economics um, and then he went to practice personal injury law and so I'm like would personal injury law or like real estate law or like, you know, there's so many different kinds of law that you could practice. Would poli sci really even help you for all of those? Like real estate law, you know, how much would poli sci help you for real estate law? Um, I don't know if that's your field or area, but you know what I'm saying? Yeah, no, I mean, it's sort of, I think a lot of people associate poli sci with like being able to make good arguments um, or at least uh, just okay. some sort of yeah and, and like getting a lay of you know because a lot of legal systems are you know reformed via political processes and so it kind of informs you on like the history of how you know legal systems sort of came to be um i don't know that's my hypothesis but i could totally see how econ would help someone with um personal injury i mean personal injury is all about just 
trying to pull together a bunch of factors and see how that can get someone like the best outcome in some sort of a you know case like a car accident or something i could see how some knowledge of, of money uh, i think yeah again this is <laughs> i'm so I, I definitely am gonna need that bar course to uh understand some of these more basic concepts outside of criminal law <laughs> well then yeah well then talk to talk to us about what you are going into in law like what kind of law are you going to be practicing so i already told everyone at your introduction you want to you want to practice and be a, a public defense attorney or a public defender you know so like what kind of law are you getting into yeah so um i am you know generally i'm going into criminal law um and then with public defense work it's uh it's all funded by the government so it's technically you know government public interest work and Kind of what else falls under that would be like prosecution, um, so states attorneys, district attorneys, um, or United States attorneys if you're working in the federal system. But um, I am planning on sticking with probably just state level things. I don't think I'd end up doing federal public defense work because they, from what I have heard, lose most of their cases and. Um, you know, that's part of the job, but also I don't necessarily want it to be always part of my job. Um, sure, and, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so definitely just uh, criminal law in general and criminal defense, a lot of it is, you know, sort of like constitutionally based, uh, lots of Fourth Amendment issues, Fifth and Sixth Amendment. Um, and public defense is actually so there was a Supreme Court case, Gideon v. Wainwright, in the early 1960s, and that kind of established that everyone is entitled to a lawyer in certain types of criminal cases, no matter how much money they make or how little they make. And so, you know, essentially, regardless of their ability to pay for a lawyer. Um, so shout out Gideon v. Wainwright. That's why I have a career. <laughs> nice very nice very nice so you want to be a public defender i feel that that's cool and help yeah. people yeah i mean i i kind of always knew i wanted to do something public interest oriented um my mom was a teacher when i was growing up kindergarten and then now she's a school administrator and you know honestly she really inspired me growing up just seeing her passion for helping people and you know making sure that people would have better outcomes than they otherwise would you know without her presence in their lives so um i, I was always pretty inspired by that and um just kind of i've, I've always been very uh <laughs> social justice oriented i'm sure you can probably remember some of my uh heated contributions in your classes in undergrad um yeah but... we won't recap them for people but yes i do <laughs> <laughs> sure um yeah so i knew going to law school i didn't public defense wasn't really on my radar at all i was honestly more thinking civil rights law um and but then i sort of fell in love with public defense i had my criminal law class in 1l and then the semester after or the summer after 1l i started interning at a local public defender's office and i just i, I loved it, it every single day i feel like i'm making some kind of a difference you know whether it's just something super tiny um just talking to someone and giving them information about the case 
we're, you know, getting motions granted and, you know, making sure people aren't going to be subject to unjust sentences. Um, it, it just, it feels really good to do the work and, and that's, you know, that's why I got into it. I love that. You getting into it to make a difference and actually making a difference. I mean, that's what it's all about. That's, you know, living the dream. I like that. I like that a lot. And it makes me happy to hear that you're actually doing it. Um, that's fantastic, Shay. Fantastic. I like to think I'm making a difference. <laughs> <laughs> of course, of course. It, making a difference in one person's life is a huge difference. All you have to do is ask that person and they will tell you. Um, we don't change the world by changing 800 or 8 billion people at a time, like all together. We change the world by changing one person at a time. Um, and then they change a person and they change a person and they change a person and you know then all the dominoes fall and then kumbaya the world is so great isn't it? <laughs> yes, yes. Right. um but let's actually use that as a segue to a greater discussion about how sometimes the world isn't all that great um and it's what you are here to talk to us about today um so shay lead us into it um what are we going to talk about yeah, so I'm essentially here today to kind of uh, talk about women in law generally, and, uh, you know, I did a little bit of research just sort of prepping for this, um, and I am kind of continually shocked by how there still isn't a lot of parity in the legal field as far as, you know, pay and representation among women, um, and, you know, for people curious, uh, I do identify as a woman. And so that's sort of why I, you know, feel responsible for talking about this. If I, you know, Michael's kindly given me this platform to talk about it. Um, so, you know, one, one source that I found, um, it was a commission, I believe, uh, created by the American Bar Association, which is the overarching uh, organization that gives people licenses and, you know, manages professional conduct in the legal field. So in 2018, their commission found that somewhere between 35 and 40% of all lawyers are women, which is a number that is steadily increasing, which is fantastic. I love to see that. Um, however, in big law, which is kind of, that's sort of the general term that people in law use to talk about the larger firms where people are making, you know, 200 grand a year right out of law school if they go into this. Um, in big law firms, only about 25% of lawyers in these firms are women. Um, and then as far as law review authors in law schools, so law review, these are like the journals that law schools will keep and they're student run, um, you know, obviously with faculty advisors, but only 20% of law review authors are women, which is pretty sad to hear, honestly. I mean, that that is, you know, it means 80% are men, 20% are women. It's just, it, it's such a, a disappointing factor to hear about, but at the same time, you know, these numbers are improving, uh, which is, is nice. And actually, uh, I, I believe my law school is more women and men, or more women than men are uh, enrolled at my law school, which I think is really cool. I love that about my law school. Um, I've had some really amazing and powerful uh, women who were my professors throughout my three years here, and they've been really inspiring and fantastic mentors for me. Um, and then another 
statistic that I found is women only account for about a quarter of all federal and state level judicial positions. So a lot of judges or all federal judges are appointed by the president, usually all Article Three judges. So these are your district court judges, your appeals, your um, like Seventh Circuit would be, you know, the Chicago, Indiana area. Seventh Circuit or any of the appellate circuit judges are appointed by the president and of course Supreme Court justices as well. Um, and on the state level, you know, this this statistic is accounting for federal and state level judges. And women are only a quarter of all judges throughout the country, which is pretty wild to me um, and a little disappointing. But again, it's a number that is improving and I'm excited to see where that goes. Um, Just screams yeah. patriarchy. Like, Absolutely. especially especially since you think about like the, the federal appointments. Um, who appoints federal judges? You said it, right? The president. When was yep. the last time we had a woman president? Ooh. <laughs> uh, Trick question. Yeah, that, that would be <laughs> never. So, I mean, it's ridiculous to to see that number is that high. And one that that I want to go back to that really kind of upsets me for a different kind of reason that you said for law review authors that women only account for 20% of law review authors. And you said that these journals are run by the institutions. They're run by law schools, right? And for me as an academic, uh, you know, for someone in the field, like that just tells me that institutions are not taking this number seriously. Like they're completely not thinking about gender equality in the review process. And like, they, how could they ignore this number? They're in the legal field. This is what they do. They, they can't not know that only 20% of law reviewers are authors because they're the ones who actively make the choice. Like that's mind boggling, Misha. It, it's really, really mind boggling. Absolutely. I mean, it's, you know, I think a lot of educational institutions really pride themselves on, you know, trying to reach um, diversity parity, you know, whether it's having more people of color in leadership positions or more, more women as law review authors. And I think a lot of institutions pride themselves on this in some ways to get better funding or to make themselves look better at a national stage. But a lot of the time it's not really borne out in actual practice. And I think these numbers really show that the progress that they're making doesn't always match up with the progress that they say they're making, if that makes sense. Um, no, it makes so. complete sense. Like, like if, if you were to say, um, let's say like this is theoretical numbers. So let's say the year before this statistic, um, that it was 19% of law review authors were women, right? Mm. But then like the next year, it jumps up to 20%. Then what is the universities, what do they all say? They're like, oh, we have more women as law authors than ever before. Yeah. And it's like, <laughs> yes, that statement is true, but it's 20%. Like, like I think you're absolutely right. A lot of the, the talk in academia about increasing diversity, either by race, ethnicity, linguistics, or by gender, a lot of it is lip service, without a doubt. Um, and these numbers definitely show that. Definitely. And I mean, institutions will try their, a lot of, some institutions will try their best uh, to get a little bit more diversity in 
in leadership and in authorship and in their academic pursuits. But, um, you know, it's the legal field actually to an extent is starting to potentially turn against itself in this regard. Um, I mean, I'm not sure if you have heard about the U.S. Supreme Court's upcoming docket, but um, I mean, I think I know where you're going. Yeah, go with it. Tell us. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, affirmative action is definitely on the chopping block. And um, I mean, it's, you know, I, I haven't read into the, you know, potential arguments that are coming up enough um, to really speak on it a lot. But it's, I know a lot of people are, are very interested to see what happens with diversity on campuses after affirmative action measures are, or, you know, potentially if they are outlawed by the U.S. Supreme Court. And so that'll be an interesting development to see how these numbers change after that, you know, whether they're going to go down or if this trend is totally unrelated to affirmative action measures. It's it's something that we'll, we'll definitely have to keep an eye on. You're right, because like we're saying here with, with women in, in law, universities may be tooting that they're, they're increasing, they're increasing, but the numbers are actually showing like it's still not good. But in these these institutions, these are these are doctors of all kinds of fields. These are lawyers who run these institutions. Like these are not stupid people. They're not ignorant people. They know these numbers. Right. They are making these choices. They make enrollment procedures. And if affirmative action disappears, even while it was here, they're obviously not doing a good job. So if right. affirmative action disappears, then they have even less incentive to do the shitty job that they were doing before. Like, right. it is, it's extremely concerning. Oh. So I, what else you got for us to make us hate the world? Well, we had some technical difficulties right there. It seems like we were getting too hot and the world broke, but you know, we're gonna fix the world right now, aren't we, Shay? How are we gonna fix the world? What, we need to know what's broken before we can fix it. So hit us with some more statistics. What you got for us? Yeah, sure thing. So. Uh, as obviously I mentioned earlier, I'm going into public defense um, and more, you know, broadly government public interest work. And I found this article, it's titled Women Helped Shape Public Defense. Um, and so it turns out, and I, I mean, again, these are statistics I didn't know about, even as someone who's going into this, 76% of elected prosecutors are men. Um, and within that, well, of all elected prosecutors, 95% are white. So, you know, this is, this does not match up as is probably pretty obvious with, you know, the general population and population demographics. Um, and it's really unfortunate, but, um, you know, that some may some. say maybe that's the nature of <laughs> prosecution. And it's actually really interesting uh, from where I was looking, you know, just kind of general research I was doing, it seems like about half and half of public defenders are men and women. Um, and in some jurisdictions, it's actually more women than men, which uh, is, you know, kind of unfortunate in a way. I mean, I, you know, I love going into a field that has that sort of parity between men and women, but it's unfortunate because the vast majority of the time, prosecutors are paid um, more than public defenders. Actually, in the state of Illinois, uh, there's now a law, this has just been within the past couple of years, where 
public, the head public defender has to be paid at least 90% of what the head prosecutor in a given jurisdiction is paid. So there isn't a law about them being paid equally. Um, and actually before that, you know, the pay disparity was even worse before they said that public defenders have to make at least 90% of what the prosecutor makes in that jurisdiction. Um, that but, has a really fucked up effect. Yeah. That incentivizes the best lawyers to want to be prosecutors because they'll make more money. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, and I, it I gives mean, like a, a bias. It gives a bias towards, oh, that's, that's disturbing besides the fact that they should be paid equal, but oh, pro prosecutors and public defenders though, they're both government employees. They're both paid by the same people, aren't they? Or am right. I wrong? No, you're totally correct. Yeah. And I mean, it's it definitely has that effect of drawing people to prosecution. It's it's definitely going to be more of a sure thing as far as pay in a lot of places. I, I believe, and I'm not totally sure about this, but I believe that on average in the Chicago area, public defenders and prosecutors are paid about the same. And in some instances, public defenders are actually paid a little bit more, which I think is really interesting. And that's a really interesting experiment. I you know, I definitely will have to do a little bit more research into exactly why that is. But, um, you know, it, it's it's sort of I mean, I've even been told by public defenders that I should consider going into pros prosecution and becoming a state's attorney instead. Um, and that's because, you know, prosecutors in the United States generally have so much power. They can they have very wide discretion on what they can charge. They can prioritize certain charges and, um, you know, go a little bit lighter on certain other charges. And it's, it's pretty amazing to see the differences in prosecutorial priorities across uh, counties, even within Illinois. Like, um, I know that in my county, there is a really heavy prioritization of gun crimes and the bail settings for people who are accused of committing gun violence in Champaign County is typically going to be really, really, really high. And that's sort of started in the last couple of years just because gun violence has become a really big problem here. Um, but at the same time, as um, I, I think a lot of people have maybe heard, uh, Illinois is eliminating cash bail starting in January of 2023. So I'm really interested to see how that's going to affect uh, gun violence in Champaign County. I have a suspicion that it will not affect it at all because, Ooh. yeah, well, because I, I think that having higher bail, it, you know, from what I've seen, it hasn't really affected gun violence at all. And I mean, you know, all it does is keep people who are unable to pay that bail in jail, but plenty of people who are able to pay it are able to get out, which, you know, in my opinion, and this is pretty common among public defender, you know, as a future public defender, I'm not one yet, but <laughs> it's a, it's a pretty common sentiment that, you know, bail sort of enhances just the income disparities between people. It really sort of enhances class disparities and because cash bail doesn't really a lot of the time doesn't have a lot of bearing on the individual person. And, you know, it's more about 
just what sort of crime they're alleged to have committed. But, you know, that's sort of a side tangent. Um, but yeah, so I, that'll be really interesting to see how that affects um, a lot of things in Illinois in the next couple of years. But yeah, so it, I mean, prosecutors in the United States generally have a lot of power and they can really affect change in the criminal legal system. And it's not that there, I mean, there certainly isn't as much power in that with public defenders, but, you know, for me, I, I like public defense because of the sort of harm reduction aspect of it. And I personally don't think I could ever be a prosecutor, but, you know, I've, yeah, I've had public defenders encourage me to do that because it's a little bit more of a stable situation um, and more power, but yeah. Let me, let me ask you, you said 76% of elected prosecutors are men. What's the, what's the percentage? I think you said it again, but I'm just curious again, the percentage for public defenders for women and men. Yeah. So from what I could see, um, it's, it seems to be about 50, 50. Um, and in, at least in Illinois, most public defenders are not elected. If I, I actually don't think any are, um, they're usually appointed by the County board. Um, so, you know, they have to be, most of the time they have to have prior public defense experience, but they're not elected, which I think is, is sort of interesting, um, in that, you know, you have to wonder why is it that an elected position tends to have more men and a non-elected position seems to have, you know, a little bit more parity. Um, yeah. So it's just interesting. <laughs> oh, patriarchy, patriarchy, what? what? <laughs> you know, you, Hey, you said it. <laughs> I, you're right. I'll say it all the day long. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. Uh, and it's not going to disappear unless we keep saying it. Like yeah. if, if, if people don't say it, then it's an invisible thing that exists. But if we do say it, then people start to realize that it does exist. And then we can actually do something about it. Um, sure. I mean, like yeah. all of these statistics that you've been saying are just horrendous, you know? Yeah, it, it's it's pretty disheartening, you know? I mean, and another aspect to that, too, is, you know, public defense is sort of seen as like a helping career. And I mean, I, prosecution also to an extent, but I think public defense is a lot more seen um, as it, it, it's kind of like the comparison that I would make it. And, you know, this sort of explains why the, it, it's women dominated in a lot of areas. Um, you know, it's like with teaching, that's also a traditionally women dominated career path. And it also is one of those career paths that is paid very low uh, with, you know, when compared to the amount of work that goes into it. And I think, again, you know, this ties in with patriarchy and sort of public's perception of who is supposed to be in these roles. And I think, you know, with prosecution, a lot of the time it's seen as a pretty high power position to hold. If you're a county prosecutor, I mean, you are running the criminal justice system in a given county. Um, and so I think, you know, that can kind of explain a little bit why there it's so much more male dominated on the prosecution side. And, you know, it, it's, it's also unfortunate, like I said, 95% of elected prosecutors are also white, which just does not really make 
sense. Um, I mean, well, you know, there is still a lot of systemic racism. That's a big problem. Um, and especially in a field that's, you know, the legal field is very traditional in a lot of ways, in, in very bad ways. Um, and there's, you know, you said like right at the beginning, it's sort of rare to meet people who don't really have a background with, you know, with family in the legal field or, you know, friends or some connections. And that's a huge, huge barrier to people entering the legal field. Um, and, you know, obviously people of color have been prevented from entering the legal field in a lot of situations, you know, not the least of which, because it is such an expensive field to get into. I mean, just paying for taking the bar is over a thousand dollars. Damn, and, what for? Yeah. It's a test. Yeah. This. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's, you know, the same company that runs the uh, LSAT, you know, the law school um, admissions test, and they have a monopoly on it. And so they're able to charge kind of whatever they want. And, you know, it, it keeps the legal field in a sort of, you know, it keeps it in like a boys club <laughs> situation because, you know, these barriers, I mean, there's, you know, I, I think a lot of people know the disparity, the, the wealth gap between white people and people of color, especially black people in the United States, where there is just so much more accumulated wealth with white people in the US than there is with black people and with other people of color. And how, how in the hell are people supposed to afford a $2,000 bar prep course, a $1,000 plus dollar test, and then potentially also, you know, if you have to work prior to taking the bar exam because you don't, you don't have the money to just sit and study all day, then that's going to lower your chances of being able to pass the exam. And then you just have to pay all over again to take it. And so it, it just, it's such a huge barrier. And yeah, so I'm, I'm a big advocate of something called diploma privilege. Um, you know, I think the bar exam sort of exists as just another barrier that keeps, you know, historically marginalized groups from entering the legal field and from making these statistics and all these numbers that I've listed and been talking about um, improve and actually reach some sort of parity. And, um, you know, so diploma privilege, essentially just you go through law school, you graduate from law school, you become a lawyer. And actually the state of Wisconsin already has this. So if you graduate from a Wisconsin law school, you are a licensed attorney. I, you know, there may be some other smaller, you know, ethics exams that you have to take just to get those licenses, but you know, you don't have to take the bar exam. You don't have to pay $2,500 for a bar prep exam. You don't have to pay or for a bar prep course. And then you don't have to pay a thousand plus dollars for an exam. Um, and I, I mean, when you're taking the bar exam, not everyone can afford to take these bar prep courses. And, you know, on top of that, even if you do, if you can afford to take it, if you have to work through that studying period, because you can't afford to just not work for three months, then that lowers your chances of being able to pass the bar exam when you do take it. And so then you have to just take it all over again and spend you know, 1500 plus dollars paying for that exam again. And it's just, it's this spiral, this cycle of keeping people out of the legal field that really would make it so much of a better place. Um, and, 
you know, that, that kind of segues into just my own personal experiences as a, a woman in the legal fields. Um, you know, it was, it honestly, it was such a huge culture shock coming to law school. Um, I, I didn't, you know, I didn't, I didn't really know any lawyers before I came here. Um, I just, I knew I wanted to, you know, continue my education. And I thought this was, this was a good way to, to do that. And at Tulane, you know, I was involved in some social justice organizations and, you know, everyone was very like oriented in, in that way. And then coming to law school, you know, it is still in a lot of ways, a very traditional field. You know, there's, there's a lot of expectations about how women are supposed to look, dress, act in the courtroom that they kind of warn you about in, in like, you know, trial advocacy courses and just talking with judges. And it's, you know, even though nominally we're supposed to be moving forward and, and accepting a broad base of people into the field and into the courtroom, you know, they, they've done studies about how juries perceive uh, female lawyers and juries tend to have a more favorable view of like women lawyers who wear skirts than they do of women lawyers who wear pants, which is just crazy. <laughs> I mean, That's it, beyond that. That's fucking ridiculous. Yeah, it's, and I mean, this is, you know, I, I, I can't even speak to the sort of discrimination that, you know, women of color have to experience in, in courtrooms as well. I mean, there, it, there's just, there's such a long way to go. Um, and it's, it's kind of just appalling that, in a field where, you know, you know, people expect lawyers to be sort of at the forefront of, of changing laws. And, and, you know, a lot of the time law will change the culture. You know, if you legalize certain, certain behaviors, certain outcomes, it, it changes the culture and it allows people to be more free. But this is just an area of the legal field that really is, it's so far behind and it's something has to change. <laughs> But um, yeah, you know, it's, I mean, it's the same in a lot of fields, but particularly, you know, in my experience working and being in a courtroom, there's just these really odd expectations about how women are supposed to act too. You know, we can't be as aggressive as like our male counterparts. Um, and a lot of the advice that male lawyers will give to female attorneys is just not applicable. Like, you know, we, we can't. Um, go really hard on witnesses. We have to play more of a demure role in a lot, or we don't have to, but there's this, there's this expectation. And there's also this notion too of like, if you go against the grain, all it's going to do is hurt your client. And so that holds a lot of people back and it, it puts a lot of guilt and a lot of shame and responsibility on, on female attorneys who would love otherwise to break the molds, you know, like I myself, I have, you know, quite a few piercings and um, I like to color my hair crazy colors sometimes, but I, you know, I, I can't anymore uh, with this, you know, because I do feel, I still feel that pressure and I feel that guilt if I were to do it, you know, would that affect my client negatively? And it's just, it's crazy. You know, we, we should be long past this, but we're not. That, that sadly makes me think that not everyone who becomes a lawyer and who becomes a judge wants to move forward. 
you yeah. know, it's as simple as that. Some people enter the field, not because they want to change things, but because they want to keep them the same. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and I think when you look at the statistics that you provided, you know, predominantly white people, predominantly men, like if a patriarchy and a racially based white patriarchy is the reason for holding the country back, and that still greatly exists within the legal profession, that's an issue. Um, and it is an issue that's holding it back. You know, and like we once again said, you said, a lot of a lot of academic institutions give lip service about how they want to move forward and diversity and stuff. But you also have to wonder how many government institutions are giving that same lip service, but at the same time are headed by people who have no intention of trying to move forward at all. Absolutely. You hit the nail right on the head. You know, it's I would love to be in in the halls of, you know, all of these institutions when they're having these conversations. I'd love to know who's being genuine and who's not, you know, but we'll never know. I mean, yeah. Well, I do want to ask you because like what you said is, is appalling, right? The fact that, that women have to act in a very particular way in court in comparison to men or, you know, or about the, the pay disparities or the offices disparities. Overall, though, have you seen that are things getting better nationwide or are things getting better in some sectors of the legal field or are things getting better just in some geographic locations? Like, like what's your take about improvement moving forward? How is it, is it, like I said, it's a lot of different ways you can look at it. Do you see improvement everywhere or just in some places? That's a difficult question because I mean, you know, I, I think in my field, there does tend to be more of a progressive bent in um, you know public defense in particular, but in government work, um, just because you know if you're going to put yourself through law school and go into student debt and still choose to go into a government position, you know there's there are certain um, it, typically that that takes uh, you're going to usually find more more progressive folks in these fields, and so there is more of a push um, among people taking the pay cut to push the boundaries a little bit. I mean, I've, I've definitely seen um, female attorneys with, you know, different colored hair. Like I've seen pink and purple hair, which I think is just super cool. And actually, um, when I first started interning at the public defender's office, I used to flip my septum ring up because I was worried um, about how I would be perceived. And then one day I went through the security area and I had it flipped down. And one of the security guards was like, oh, I didn't know you had that. And I was like, oh, you know, shit, like flipped it back up. And he's like, you know, nobody cares, right? I was like, what, what do you mean nobody cares? Like I have been told for so long that if you have facial piercings of any kind, like, you know, you're gonna be seen as not, you're just not gonna be taken very seriously. And, you know, I went in and I, I talked to a couple of the other public defenders and they were like, yeah, we don't care. The judges don't really, care clients especially don't really care as long as you're doing a good job and so in my experience in the uh criminal side of things it's definitely going in a better direction um and you know i've heard stories about even in big law it's definitely getting better they're you know allowing a little bit more diversity of expression um and especially i've, I've heard with you know diversity of gender expression too there's a lot more acceptance of 
trans people in, in more fields and um, of people who don't really stick with the gender binary. Um, and I think that's great. And, but obviously, you know, with the statistics I've shown, we have a long way to go for sure. Definitely, it is, it is good news. And you are right, you know, we do, we do still have a long way to go, but that's also why it's important. So like all these statistics we have for these recent years, we also need to continue compiling these statistics in five years from now, in 10 years from now. Like we need to compare to see over time, are we really getting better or are we only getting better in some places or not? Like I have to wonder, are things only getting better on the criminal side of things in the Chicago area? Is that true of like the rural Illinois area? Is it true of like Oklahoma area, urban versus rural? Like there's a lot of different questions that, you know, I think we don't necessarily have the data to answer. Um, like even that you were talking about earlier, you like you had to you had to get more of a sense of things because some of the data just don't exist. Um, and and I think partially for those individuals trying to hold back moving forward it is an advantage for them that the data don't exist. Because if the data did exist and they tell the story, well, then people would be outed as trying to, you know, reinforce the patriarchy, for instance. But I do have one last question to send us out on. And it's, a, you know, Shay, I met you almost five years ago, you know, in an intro American government class. And yeah. it's been quite some time. And we've taken quite a journey. And now you're in 3L, you're in your last year of law school. Um, and the people who are most directly going to be listening to this are you five years ago. You know, there are people, my students, who are very much thinking about what their next step is. And I wanna, wanna ask you if you maybe have anything to say to the women out there who are thinking about going to law school or just anyone, you know, about their next step after graduation. Um, Go ahead, take it away. Yeah, uh, do it. Just, I mean, do it. You know, I, I think, at least at my law school, there's there's a lot of opportunities for scholarships, um, and so I mean, if you can find, and there's plenty of law schools out there that if you do well enough in undergrad, you can get you can get a good scholarship and you can make it happen. And I think having a JD really opens up a lot of doors and. So I would say anyone who's, you know, curious about it, I think, um, you know, especially at Tulane, there's, uh, you know, some resources in the pre-law office, but I think also just if you have a passion for wanting to help people and, you know, you want to continue going to school and you want to continue somewhat sort of a poli-sci path, I mean, I think, I think a lot more people would do well in law school than, than they think. You know, I think a lot of people are kept out based on finances or thinking that it's gonna be way too difficult, but I, you know, I, I think more people should consider law school. I really do. I think people scare, you know, younger people about it. And I'm actually, I'm one of the younger people at my law school um, because I, I went straight through. And I also would, encouraged just based on talking to my colleagues who took some time off between you know if you can take some time off between maybe be a paralegal see if that's for you um and or you know maybe don't don't do anything legal related just you know go and 
do something that that sounds fun and that you might be interested in see if you like it and then if you don't then law school will always be there you know there's no there's no real rush most law schools have plenty of um people there who didn't go straight through in fact a lot of the top law schools prefer people who have two years of working experience now so you know no rush but also i i think I, I've enjoyed it so far and I feel really fortunate to have had this experience. That's amazing. That's amazing. You heard it. You heard it straight from Shay, people. Just do it. Just go to law school. Just apply now. Go, go out there and change the world. Make it a better place. Yes, indeed. Just do it. <laughs> yes. Shay, truly, thank you so much for coming on to the show. I've, I've, I've wanted you back on since since the last time you were on. So, you know what? Don't make us wait so long next time. In fact, <laughs> let's 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 put it on the books that after you're done with law school, you have to come back next uh, next summer. Um post bar exam, huh? How about that? I'd love to. I I'm always I'm always happy to catch up with you and happy to, you know, spread the message to the youth. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. All right, Shay, thank you again, and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much. And that's a brief snapshot of what's going on in the U.S. legal system today. Do you have questions for Shay Meredith, our guest? Write into the show. We'll get them on to her. And it's not a cliche or a catchphrase. It's a lifestyle. Always remember that Lafayette Poli size more than just me. It's the we that we be. Meredith and Pickering, signing off.